Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is C.V. Harquale, a change agent, author, consultant, and retired management professor who works at the intersection of organizational change, feminist praxis, leadership, and digital technology. We will be talking with C.V. about her recent book, Feminism, A Key Idea for Business and Society, the first to combine feminism and business. We explore how the ideas in the book craft a vision of work where businesses are profitable, products and work are meaningful, financial returns are consistent and fair, and individuals, communities, and the planet all flourish. CV offers practical tools, useful frameworks, and novel resources for initiating and sustaining real change. In part two of our conversation with CV, we talk about feminist organizational structures, practices, and systems, and how businesses can implement and be transformed by them. In your last chapter, you talk about feminist interventions and core business concepts. Yeah. And you identify three central questions where feminist business perspectives differ from conventional business. Yes. What are the ways in which these feminist interventions are actually Uh being employed? Can you give us any examples? So this is where it... This is the point in the book where it becomes apparent that it's being written by a management scholar or an organization scholar versus uh, by an entrepreneur or even a social justice activist. Because uh, my training as a um, person with a PhD in organizations is to really look at the big picture of what is the point of this kind of organization and to really change how we think about business. We have to step all the way back to these big questions about what is this business here to do? And what are our, our sort of un, conventionally unchallenged assumptions about what we're here to do? Because we have to go back to those first assumptions in order to recreate a different vision um, for businesses. So I propose that there are these uh, three questions that are central to any business. And the first one is, what should the goals of this business and what should the goals of this activity actually be? Like, what are we here to do? And when we have that answer, we then have to ask, how should we coordinate or control this activity that we're here to do? And the phrase coordinate and control is a dog whistle to organization scholars because there's a very prominent Um, article on the theory of the firm that says an organization, a business, exists to control and coordinate collective behavior. And I think that's really interesting because you only need to control behavior where you can't trust behavior. You only need to control behavior where you're needing to try to get more from people than you're giving them. So there's an implicit assumption about the purpose of a business in this phrase, coordinate and control. And then the third question is, what values will lead to this organization, this business's success? 
And these are the fundamental questions that are at the, at the foundation of how we think about business today. And when we define a business today, we understand that a business is basically a group of people working together to make stuff that they can sell at a price that generates returns or profits. Those profits are used to pay the workers, but most of them go back to the owners who put up the capital or who owned the resources to begin with, right? So basically businesses are set up to have people do work so that owners can make money. They're not set up for people to have meaningful jobs. They're not set up to create great products for this world. Um, They're not set up to support communities and families. They're set up to transfer money from workers' work to owners. And I hate to tell people, but that's what a business is. It is designed to make money for owners. Because when it doesn't make money for owners, it goes out of business. When it's not about making money for owners, it's a nonprofit. It's not a business. And people hate that because they're like, ew, but no, I thought it was a place to have a meaningful career. And I'm like, nah. Your meaningful career is, a, is an epiphenomenon of the overall purpose. Your meaningful career is a gilded rose on a really thorny bush. Your meaningful career is the story they are telling you to work harder so you'll make them more money. I know, harsh, isn't it? Yeah, no, but you, sh- yeah. you shared some examples <laughs> of feminist organizational structures and practices some of these have been identified more in, let's say, the social impact or startup mm-hmm. industries. So examples are um, democratic decision-making, rotating task, egalitarian mm-hmm. distribution of awards, etc. But if you're not the founder, if you don't have that level of quote-unquote authority and you're someone who is working within an organization, big or small, yeah. and you want to make change in your organization, how do you do that? How do you apply feminism to your workspace given how much power or lack of power you may have? That is a terrific question because it helps us remember that in fact, we do have some power. We do have some agency. We do have opportunities to act differently within the bandwidth of what's considered appropriate. And we also have the ability to push on the constraints of what's considered appropriate to create new ideas. So we all do have ways that we can bring feminist principles and feminist praxis into the work that we do every day, notwithstanding the importance of focusing on the structure and understanding the system and thinking big picture. There are things that we can do every day. And I like to remind people that we focus on doing what we can with what we have, where we are, with the big picture in mind. So I ask people when I do workshops on like the feminist business model canvas or even feminism at work, I ask people to think about what is the work that they actually do. So in my case, I I go in and teach students. What can I do in the classroom that helps to enact or demonstrate feminist principles? What can I do in the classroom that changes some of the power dynamics in the classroom? And crazy, 
one of the things I used to do, and it took years before anybody actually noticed, is I would always make the first person I called on in class a woman. And I would make it be a woman who looked like she was ready to participate because I wanted to give women, and in other cases, men of color, um, I wanted to give them the opportunity to set the foundation for the conversation in class about the business case. And a small thing, but what it would do is every time a woman or a man from a marginalized group would be the first one to speak, they would be the person to articulate the analysis, to articulate the suggested courses of action, to focus um, on some issues and not other issues in the case. And that was one way that I could create something different in the class. Really small, but it mattered. Really small, but it mattered. And so everybody, all of us in the work that we do every day, we get to make some choices and we can choose differently. So we can say things like, please don't respond to this email over the weekend. It's not urgent. Let's talk about it Monday afternoon. Let's acknowledge that the people we work with have have uh, lives. Like it just was Canadian Thanksgiving. And I had something I, I needed, I need to talk about with one of my colleagues in Toronto. And I waited because I'm not going to go pester her because it's Thanksgiving. I can wait. I can wait till Tuesday afternoon. So I waited and we had a great conversation yesterday. Right. That there, some of those things are really straightforward and easy to do. I was thinking of her whole humanness. I was thinking of her and her relationship to her family. I was thinking of her in terms of her day off. And I was like, you know what? It's not mission critical. It can wait. So I could make that choice and take one little thing out of one little thing away from burdening her. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, it doesn't seem like a whole lot, but it makes a material difference in her world and it makes a material difference in my world. How do you make that scalable? Yeah, you don't. I mean, here, here's an example. So, you, you know, you and yeah. I, you and I met at the Entrepreneurial Feminist Forum, mm-hmm. and that was the first time I had attended any professional event uh, in Canada. I mean, it was lovely because I had never, at a professional event, had experienced land acknowledgement. Yep. And and yep. you actually integrated that into your bio on your website, even yep. though you're American and you're based out of Chicago. So I love that. But it's, you know, it's kind of buried a little bit into your web in your website. And mm-hmm. unless someone's reading every single word, they would have missed that. And so just that little shift, like I'm sharing it now, mm-hmm. but but how do we get people it's almost like a tree in the forest, right? If it falls, no one's there to listen. This is did it happen? And <laughs> can it have that ripple effect? And so, well, it does. It does. And I'll give you the, that land acknowledgement is actually a really good one because I originally would use a land acknowledgement for the Lenny Lenape people in New Jersey because I used to live in New Jersey and I had to change it when I moved to Chicago. But here's something so weird. So I learned about land acknowledgements from my Canadian siblings. And I uh, learned from the white women and I learned from the indigenous women how they saw it and how it was meaningful to them and how it went beyond just like a, you know, a government thing that they're supposed to do when they get government money and stuff like that. So they taught me 
And then I, and I also saw some of my Canadian friends do it online. And I thought I can do this. I can go look up the people who, whose lands on whom I'm living and I can acknowledge their names in my book. And so I put the, the land acknowledgement in my acknowledgements of my book, right? Mm-hmm. And then I also put it in my bio. And I went and I did a panel at a management conference last month. And it was in my bio. And the woman reading my bio stumbled over the words because she didn't know how to pronounce Potawatomi, which, I'm, I, you know, if you've never heard it, you don't know. It could be Potawatomi or whatever. Um, so the Potawatomi peoples, I, I live and work on their historic territory. And, uh, and she stumbled over it and I said, oh, it's Potawatomi. You know, they're the, um, the indigenous people who uh, were, the, were the historical stewards of the land that my house is built on. And I'm looking at this room of Americans and I'm like, they're learning what a land acknowledgement is and also how to pronounce Potawatomi. And so they will know now. And it will, you know, maybe yesterday on it or Monday on Indigenous Peoples Day, they were like, oh, right. Yeah. Some people use a land acknowledgement. I will say that one of the things about a land acknowledgement or even talking about, you know, people in my life who are, um, this, that, and the other ways different from me, or even just coming out and saying in my book and in other places, hey, you know, look at me. I'm a cis, white, upper middle class, highly educated, really articulate, married, blah, 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 person of all so many privileges. There are many ways that when we do these little things, they can seem like virtue signaling. They can seem like, oh, I I know that I should tell you my pronouns because I'm like committed to social justice. So for me, the, I, I kind of go back and forth with how prominent should I make this? Should I, uh, you know, and this is at a point where I'm still very aware of making the decisions before it becomes automatic to me. And you just mentioning that it um, took you some time to find the land acknowledgement on my website. I'm like, oh, maybe I should go back and move that. Did I put a land acknowledgement in my newsletter when I sent it out yesterday? I don't think I did. Should I? Or does that make me look like, you know, no, a, a pompous white lady. I don't know. I go back and forth on it, you know, because I am also walking around in a, in a body and a social position that just screams, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think you know what you're talking about, CV. <laughs> no, but, but no, here's an example. So I'm, I, am, um, I am organizing a feminist business meetup at a co-working space and we're having our uh, second big meeting tonight. And I was sending out an email to say, okay, just so you know, I'm the, I'm the 58 year old white lady with blonde hair. Who's, you know, a little bit chubby and has a nice handbag. I'm the lady that you're not going to think is here to talk about intersectional feminism. And it's always really, you know, how do we use, how do we, how do I, I'll use a neoliberal metaphor. How do I invest my privilege? How do I spend my privilege wisely? How do I use it wisely? But also at the same time, I worry about like just being insufferable with my uh, pronouns, my land acknowledgements, you know, my endless sighting of bell hooks. Right? <laughs> it's very hard to tell the difference between people who are being hypocritical and posers and people who are struggling to learn. So um, 
uh, some, I was just reading an interview with somebody yesterday, I don't remember who, and they were talking about this idea that um, when you feel judgment of others, you should step back and say, what is it I need to learn here? And sometimes when I feel judgment of other people who are doing a lot of virtue signaling or seeming insufferable, I'm like, what do I need to learn here? Oh, I need to learn to give people a lot of room as we're working to figure this out because the tools we have are clumsy and the tools we have are largely incremental and we're building our skills and we just have to make it okay to not be perfect all the time. That's a great segue to my next question, which was, as you were talking, I was thinking about acknowledgement and the concept. I don't know if you coined this phrase or if it was in existence already, oblivious discovery. Yeah. And and so when you when you hear business concepts that have been that are not being attributed to its original probably feminist uh-huh. uh, originator do you ask yourself that question what do i need to learn here if if their intention is something positive and they just stumble let's say stumbled upon that idea mm-hmm. like for example new power on their own right. or do you call them out Yes, that is such a generous question, Terry, because you're asking me to use something I've recommended on my own for myself or on my own behavior. So when so first of all, I did actually coin the term oblivious discovery because I wanted to find a way to talk about what um, people of color call columbusing. So columbusing is this idea of some white guy showing up where people already lived and saying, ooh, look what I've discovered. Let's take it. It's mine, right? And I didn't want to use Columbusing because that's very specific to um, colonialist discourse. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a term that's really important for what it's talking about. And I wanted something that was kind of more general and uh, more pro- more businessy, if you will. Um, so oblivious discovery, which is this whole idea that you're oblivious to everything that came before the fact that you noticed it. Oh, guess what, Cheryl? Pregnant women might need parking spots that are closer to the building because it's hard to walk in your nine month, ninth month. You know, you didn't have to like be the first one to discover that when it happened to you. You could have looked around or you could have asked other people and you could have made made accommodations to support them way longer ago. So oblivious discovery is, um, I see it all over the place. And there are times when, yes, I see it and I ask myself, "What? I'm pissed off. What do I need to learn here? Um, what do I need to learn when people talk about teal organizations as though no one ever thought about it before? Or what do I need to talk about when, or think about, or understand, or empathize with when people talk about, hey, maybe peer-to-peer organizing is really the way to go. And I'm like, hello? Did you not know this has been done before? So there's that. And then there are other situations where I uh, like literally know for a fact that they knew better and they're doing it anyway. And I will give you the example of the new power conversation. So the guys who wrote the book um, had a Harvard Business Review article where they talked about their great idea of new power. New. It's new power. And I reached out to them and said, hey, you think it's new power, but uh, 1924, Mary Parker Follett 
Um, it's right here. She defined the term power with. Here's how she uses it. Here's the legacy of this term in organizational scholarship for the last uh, 90 years, 95 years. Maybe you would not want to call it new power. Maybe you would want to cite her, mention her, whatever. And we had a back and forth conversation. And I thought I had helped uh, them learn about new power and power with. And then their book comes out and there is a passing half-assed reference to some feminists around page 183. So that to me is kind of deliberately maintaining your blinders on. And I think how hard would it be to give somebody that, that acknowledgement? Okay, Mary Parker Follett's dead now, but how hard would it be to just throw her name in there? Maybe around page five. And then come up with an explanation for, you know, why did it take you so freaking long to get a book about, uh, an article about this published in the Harvard Business Review? Yeah, I mean, I, I read New Power first before I learned about Mary Parker Follett. Mm-hmm. And now having heard your, about your interaction, my instinct is that their response possibly is just a way of sort of advancing and maintaining their own power and privilege. Yes. And it's not, because that's actually something that is very frustrating to me when these ideas come out. There are a lot of books and ideas and concepts that you've identified that are in the social impact space in particular, mm-hmm. which is where I navigate a lot. And it's just so frustrating because I feel like I, I'm doing the same thing where with regard to domestic violence and gender-based violence and the media's sort of invisibility mm-hmm. and lack of calling out of the gender aspects of crimes, let's say, you mm-hmm. know, in their reporting. Similarly, in the business space, all of these ideas, if they're rooted in feminism and they're not naming it, then they're just basically not not helping to normalize it and advance it, right? And if you're not advancing it, then you're holding it back in some ways. And so mm-hmm. that's really frustrating to me because I'm always making comments on people's posts or whatever on LinkedIn, et cetera. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm like nitpicking and mm-hmm. I'm often a sole voice making these comments and not really shifting the conversation in any way, but then I still do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I'm, you know, getting back to the tree falling in the far, uh, you know, falling in the forest. What difference are we making? Mm-hmm. But here, but I think you're actually a really good example of the difference that we're making. It's like you are now aware of this particular instance, but also of the general practice of taking ideas that have been around for a long time, that have been nurtured and uh, protected and uh, sacrificed for by other people, by other groups, and just using them for your own purposes and your own self-aggrandizement. Now, the ideas presented in the new power book, great ideas. We need more organizations to take them up. But I think we also need the people taking them up to recognize that those ideas came from an analysis of power that said the conventional way that power is used, the conventional way that it's understood that some people should have power over others just because they're white, just because they're male, just because they have money, just because they speak English. That's 
not appropriate. That's what we want to change. We don't want to just change the dynamics between customers and suppliers. We want to change the dynamics that say customers or suppliers matter more because of the position that they hold. No, we all matter. All of us matter. So what are some examples of companies or leaders out there who are actually employing feminist leadership practices and building feminist businesses? Well, so that is always a question that people ask me, and I want to offer it with a caveat, which is to say that, well, two caveats. The first one is that we often, when we criticize something in society, and I'm, I'm sure that you have felt this also, that you'll go out and you'll criticize the four prison profit complex, and then somebody will say to you, well, show me a way to deal with criminals that is better, that doesn't have any of this stuff. And all of a sudden, because you're a critic and because you can see what's wrong and kind of imagine what's right, you're asked to prove it. And that's kind of like saying, well, you know, Fish could live outside of water if they had different kind, like if we put little breathing apparatus on them and then someone's like, okay, show me a fish living outside of water. Well, I haven't built the thing yet, but I have ideas. I have some values. I have a team of people we're working on it. And so people use your inability sometimes to show a perfect example of the fully formed opposite. They use that as an opportunity to say, see, it's not real. Um, So I just want to say that oftentimes people will say, well, show me a feminist business. And I'm like, well, let me just say that that request to show me a feminist business can be on a dimension of like, prove it to me, um, hoping you'll fail to, can you give me some ideas of what I can model? Can you give me some places to look for possibility and inspiration? So you're asking the question around possibility and inspiration. But often that same question is asked um, almost as a taunt. Mm -hmm. Okay, so with that in mind, so I think there are a bunch of companies out there that are piecemeal doing things that are very feminist and also more holistically trying things that are feminist. So my favorite example of a, a feminist business overall is Luna Pads, and they make um, reusable menstrual cloths and uh, menstrual underwear and also other, other pro- they sell other products that females use to manage their menstrual flow. And Luna Pads is a feminist organization in so many ways. So starting with the product that they have created, it is for female people um, to help them live better lives. It's um, economic, ecologically more sustainable than others. It's socially more sustainable. They advertise in a way that promotes feminist values of inclusion. And uh, they also promote feminist values around making bodies normal and menstruation healthy and not something to be ashamed of. So from the product and customer side, they're very feminist. But also when they think about their organization themselves for a very long time, Lunapads had co-CEOs, and they had two women, a businessy person and a visiony fabricy person, working together to run the company and learning how to share power and to share leadership and also how to give each other time off so they could run a startup and have full lives with their families and their communities. 
Unipads has also done things like make sure that all the people that they work for get a life-sustaining wage. They um, give their workers maternity leaves and family leaves to the degree they can. Um, they have also made an effort to change the industry conversation about what, um, what menstrual products need to be. They don't talk about them as sanitary products. They don't talk about them as feminine protection, like we need to be afraid of our periods. Oh, my God. We need to be protected from our periods. What does that say? Nope, they're menstrual supplies. They catch your flow. They can be rewashed and reused. They come in nice colors. But they have changed almost single-handedly the conversation that we have culturally around periods. They and a couple of other small businesses like them started the whole menstrual justice movement. They started the practice of giving away menstrual supplies to women who couldn't afford them um, as part of their own social responsibility efforts. So I think about Luna Pat. My husband is always saying to me, can you come up with something that's not about menstruation that men can understand? And I'm like, I don't know why men can't understand menstruation. I don't know why that example bothers you. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of use that example on purpose. But then uh, I can offer two other examples that, I, that are way outside the realm of menstrual products. So um, one of them is uh, Bumble. And Bumble is a dating app that famously lets women make the first move. And their feminism is, um, is a developing feminism, but their intent is really feminist. They want to use their product to help change the way that um, men and women and people of all genders interact with each other to find friends, to find communities, and to find life partners. And there are some things that they do that, you know, may or may not be as feminist as we want, um, but there are many things that they do where they're asking, how can we change the process of what we're doing in this business to make a difference? And so I, I love that they're thinking big in that way and that they're an organization that's that really trying to figure out what it is within the constraints of the world in which they live, which is a highly leveraged, highly, you know, it's a financially, it's a huge business. Um, it's a unicorn business digitally. So there's a, a lot of pressure and expectations for them to perform a certain way. And they're making nudges and changes where they can. And I think um, they're one of those organizations where because of the breadth of their products and the breadth of their position, they can um, make very incremental changes that in the aggregate really make a difference. So that's one. And then another, uh, another company that I really like that people can read about is this company called Percolab, which is Perk, like uh, P-E-R-C-O lab. Um, I don't know what the words mean, but Percolab is a consulting firm based in in Montreal. And Percolab is the consulting firm that Samantha Slade works in and works with. And Samantha recently wrote a book called Going Horizontal. And Going Horizontal describes how do we work in more peer-to-peer -peer relationships as a business 
and between businesses um, to eliminate the kinds of hierarchy that are illegitimate and that reinforce illegitimate power relationships. And Going Horizontal is a profoundly, profoundly feminist book drawn um, from feminist history and feminist experience, as well as as whether as well as other social justice movements, in which I don't think the word feminism is ever mentioned. And it's not that way because Samantha as an author or Percolab as a business is trying to deny um, the influence of feminism or the importance of feminism in the way that they do their work. Um, but it's written that way as uh, a deliberate tactic to help more people find the work. So they decided, um, Samantha and her publisher decided that um, the word feminism would scare people off. And so they weren't going to use it. And instead, they were going to kind of Trojan horse it and get the ideas in there kind of by any means necessary so that people could start thinking differently about business. And one of the things I like about um, Going Horizontal and Percolab is that they are very transparent about the kinds of things that they're trying to do. And they are a really good example of a company, a small one, that is changing the way that the workers in the company take ownership and take responsibility for different projects and also take um, the profits or uh, take money from different projects. So they have a... uh, a well-articulated process for negotiating who's going to do what, how much they're going to charge, and how much you're going to get of the profits of this particular piece of work. And it changes with every piece of work. And so that's one way for them to be responsive to people's different life conditions or to give people the opportunity to practice their expertise or join a project where they're going to learn something new. And it always keeps them in conversation about what is the value that I can add What is the value we can create? And how do we want to share that value both with our customers and with each other? And I think that they really are helping us think differently about what it means to make profit. So I love Percolab for that example. And then a really weird little one, um, again, in a very different context that I think of as a pretty feminist. They do a lot of feminist things, but I don't think they would understand themselves that way at all is a company called Basecamp. And you might know Basecamp because they make project management software. Mm -hmm. So that maybe we use Basecamp with the Entrepreneurial Feminist Forum to organize our work as a a coordinating and production team. And Basecamp uh, is one of the things that I love about Basecamp that I think is very feminist is that they have a program that they call the Calm Company, C-A-L-M. And they have created a whole set of practices around not being rushed at work, not overworking, not working into the evening, not working on weekends, finding ways to use your time efficiently and well within what are really sensible constraints about what part of your life should be work and what part of your life should be for the rest of life, the, you know, all the other fun stuff, addition to work. And I really like that because they're, they're looking at a system level at their company and saying, how do we organize the work that we do so that we can all make a living and so that our investors can make a just return, but so that we're not squeezing 
everything we can out of the people who work here. And I think that is such a profound kind of change to make in how you think about what your business, your organization is there to do. It's really very, very feminist. Um, but I, I am not sure that that Basecamp thinks of it that way. But I'm glad that you're naming them because now they get to. <laughs> and hopefully yeah. they'll ado- um, adopt that language. Well, also, yeah, they're also based here in Chicago. And I'm like, oh, now that I live in Chicago, I probably should call them up and say, hey, can I come talk to you about how feminist you are? And you don't even know it. Um, Since you're talking about technology, and that, that was part of your bio as well, mm-hmm. I, I want to add one that I don't know that it's fully feminist, but there's elements of it that I, I think maybe we can consider. Mm-hmm. Lumio. Yes, that's right? an example that I, I've used in my book, and I love them. Why do they come up for you? Oh, well, because first of all, the idea of governance in general, of, yes. you know, decision making, um, having a platform where people can contribute. And then the founders were part of Occupy Wall Street, I believe, right? And yes. And so I think just that sort of their values are aligned with creating transparency and collective decision-making, all things that you had identified. Yes. And they're based out of New Zealand. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think New Zealand in many ways are, is more progressive than, than, of course, the U.S. at this point, especially. And just Yeah, I think the progressives in New Zealand are, stand in such a stark contrast to the convention that um, it's, we're able to see just what a stand they're making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One more question before we get to our concluding questions. I, we've talked a lot about carrots and incentives mm-hmm. for how businesses can and should transform their practices and structures. We haven't really talked about any sticks and I don't know that this is this should be considered a stick. Maybe it should also be mm-hmm. <laughs> morally, you know, as you would identify and call it. I would hope that it's also a carrot in some ways. But the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, what role does the Equal Rights Amendment play in making sure that all of the positive visions that you have can actually be insured and protected? Wow, Terry, that's that's a great question because I haven't even thought about it. Because the ERA to me is two things. It's something that I lobbied for when I was in high school. And it's something that's kind of a dream if we can flip three congressional seats in Virginia or something like that. I mean, it's like it's so out there in in my world in terms of possibilities. But why? Why have I missed that? Thank you for bringing that up because I'll have to think about that because I don't know. I don't know. And I, I, I'm going to get on Google and start learning. That's a great question. I love this quote that you have in your book. It's on page 126 for folks who want to reference the book. Dominance is a defining feature of patriarchal systems and violence is the policing apparatus of patriarchy. Yes. So I... I think that the way businesses are structured, especially around issues of workplace violence, harassment, and discrimination, that there is no disincentive because of 
structures like employment clauses that would require confidentiality, you know, the whole Harvey Weinstein, his tactics, obviously his disinformation tactics, where he went after his quote-unquote accusers slash victims. And of course, mandatory arbitration, is that what it's called? Right? Mandatory arbitration clauses. So that that just reinforces power imbalances from the beginning. And of course, NDAs, um, if you do have a settlement. So there, there's so many. And these are all, if you will, neoliberal privatizations of activities that should be citizen-based, community-based, and uh, in the justice system, not um, the side agreements and contracts between two businesses or people acting as businesses. And, and, and right, I, I just realized it wasn't mandatory. It's called force arbitration clause. Yeah. So even more <laughs> visually, Same. you know, yeah. like violent. But forced, right? Yeah. Forced. I just feel like there's, for me personally, we can't really transform the system unless we have that protection legally to hold companies accountable if they don't incentivize themselves to transform. Yes, I'll agree with you on that one. <laughs> um, I hadn't really thought about it, but I, I do think it's true that, um, that, so in my book, I talk about how basically the, the form of organizations now, the starting point of organizations now is built on the threat of violence. It's built on the threat that if, if I employ you at will, I can discharge you at will. You are always, as an employee, um, you know, one arbitrary word from your manager away from not having a livelihood. And that system is not ever challenged in business. That's just how it is. And businesses are built on the threat of violence that the people above you can have on the people who are below them in the hierarchy, if you will. And uh, Andrea Dworkin, to be very radical here, Andrea Dworkin famously said that all penetrative sex is rape. And I think she meant that more metaphorically than actually. And it's it's an issue that a lot of dissertations have been written about. But I feel sometimes when I say things like businesses are basically built on the threat of violence. That is the fundamental, a fundamental principle of how we organize today. When I say that to business people, they look like I've said every kind of penetrative sex is rape. I mean, they think it is so out there. It's so unbelievable that I, they need to write me off as a crazy person. But I kind of, I want to say, show me the lie. Show me that it's not true. Show me that your idea of leadership isn't just icing on the cake of authoritarianism and of a threat of violence or threat of harm. Show me, like, one of the things I think is crazy is how we talk about business leaders. And we forget that, you know, one of the things that really makes them leaders is they can downsize your whole division if they want. If you get out of line, they can close your division. Oh, you want to unionize? Let's close down the business. That's leadership. That's a foundational piece of leadership, the way that we think of it in business. And all the other stuff about charisma and empathy and inspiration and stewardship, all icing on the cake of that fundamental dynamic. 
So, and so all this to say, I think when I bring these things up, people think I'm crazy. But, and of course, for the folks who listen to the Engendered podcast, the conversation in my book about violence in organizations and how it is normal, um, I think they'll probably find that really interesting. Because, you know, we forget two things. We forget how much of our society is organized around violence and the threat of violence. We forget how much of our individual behavior, like my whole like clutching my keys and turning on the light of my iPhone when I'm walking to a parking space at 10 o'clock at night, that whole thing, threat of violence. We forget how profoundly that forms many things in, in our businesses and in our culture. And we also forget that it is something we can change. These are attitudes and behaviors and presumptions that we can challenge and change. Heck, we even have examples of people doing it differently, companies doing it differently. I think this is a great segue into our concluding questions, which I ask to every guest, Mm -hmm. what I call the engendered questionnaire that I've adapted from the Inside the Actor Studio questionnaire. Mm -hmm. My first question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What's at stake is our humanity. We are not fully human. When we are using differences like sex or gender or race or ability to separate some people as being less than human and others as being super or the best humans, Our humanity is unfulfilled. Our humanity is unexpressed when we rely on violence to shape our behavior. What gives you hope? I'm going to start crying. Um, what, What gives me hope is that I can see over the course of my lifetime, I can see small changes that have made really profound differences for some people. And especially now, especially in the last four or five years, I see so many more people coming into the conversation. Like the idea that we have right now 10 books that I can recommend to you on being anti-racist, it's mind-blowing to me because 25 years ago, there was one, Understanding Everyday Racism. That was the book. And now there are 10 just in the last two years alone. So what gives me hope is that the conversation is getting bigger. More people are coming into it. The people who are in it have been pushing it further, have been taking it farther. And so I, I do honestly feel like it is changing. I could never have gotten, I, there, there, there's a reason why my book is the only book that's written, the only book out there on feminism and business. I could have written this book 20 years ago. No one would have published it. No one would have given it to their their friends and colleagues as a Christmas present. <laughs> so that's what gives me hope, that it is in fact changing. And final question. What can each of us do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think... More of is we can be more loving towards each other. 
when we are trying to figure out how to act in the workplace and how to lead and follow and collaborate. We can be more generous and we can be more giving and more loving. Uh, And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I I do think that fundamentally, when we talk about a, a world without hierarchy, we're talking about a world that is that is led by love, that is guided by love, that is characterized by loving and caring interactions for ourselves and for others. What I would like us to do less of is uh, accepting the quote-unquote received wisdom about social movements and social justice. So I want people to stop assuming, for example, that feminism is only about being equal to men and that feminism doesn't include addressing other kinds of oppression. Like that's a story you've been told. That's not the whole story. And much of that story you've been told is wrong. Stop believing it. Go learn for yourself. And I just honestly, I wish people would also stop thinking that just because you have a vagina or ovaries, you are a feminist and know what feminism is. And if you have um, a scrotum, you don't know what feminism is and you can't ever be feminist. I want people to pick up a couple books and start learning. And I want people to start talking or continue talking with each other to learn. Because these things are things that we learn how to do better and learn how to move out of. They, They are not just things that pop out from our experience, although our experience is very important. Thank you so much, CV, for your generosity in our conversation today. Well, it ha- it's been my pleasure, Terry. And thank you for, act- for asking questions that are so thoughtful. I think I, I've made some notes as we've talked about things I want to go back and reconsider. And some of the questions that you've served up are like, oh, yeah. Wow, what'll happen when we think about that? So thank you for generous at questioning and listening too. Let's keep our conversation going as well. I'm on it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.